everybody. Welcome. Uh, so glad you can make it this morning. If this is your first time, at least in the last few weeks, uh, you're just in time. We're in, uh, we're about two or three weeks into a series that we've been calling Messy Church, uh, where we are essentially learning from the Bible how to live fully out of our hearts with God and with each other, which can sometimes be a little messy. Uh, but Jesus tells us that it's worth it, so we're going to do it. Um, this is essentially a series on emotional and spiritual health. And just to give you a little recap, if this is your first time uh, in this series, you, uh, I'll just give you all that you need to know in the next few seconds. Um, but the first week that we, we started this, we essentially answered the what and why questions. What is emotional and spiritual health? What is emotionally healthy spirituality? And why should you care, right? So if those are questions you're asking right now, that'd be a good uh, sermon to, to go and revisit. Everything after that is answering the how question. How do we grow in emotional and spiritual health? How do we live fully out of, out of our hearts with God and with each other? And the very first uh, part of that, week two, was on self-awareness. I'm thinking of this prayer by Augustine uh, from the fourth century, Lord, grant that I may know myself, that I may know you. Uh, And so it's that principle that that God wants to work deep within our hearts, so we must uh, open our hearts to his work, and that involves knowing ourselves, knowing uh, the, the rhythms of our own hearts, what's going on deep down inside that God might be present in those things. Everything from this point on is going to have that as its launching pad. So later when we speak about enlarging our soul through grief and loss, uh, that is going to require that we know where we're grieving. That's going to require that we know and are in touch with loss Uh, and and so on and so forth. So self-awareness, a big one, a big part of emotional and spiritual well-being, a huge part of the discipleship of the Christian to Jesus. And so uh, if you missed that one, please go back, listen to it. Uh, But what we're going to do today is take that idea that we learned from uh, the story of Jacob what we see in Jesus' life, we're gonna drill down even more deeply. Self-awareness involves us looking not just to our feelings here and now, not just to our hearts here and now, it also requires us going back into the past. And so for that, I wanna read to you a passage uh, from Exodus chapter 34, verse seven. Uh, And actually, if you just turn with me there to Exodus 34, uh, our, our text is going to be verse 7, but I just want to, uh, we'll just keep it off the screen. I just want to read all seven verses because this is a, a great passage. As you're turning there, um, this, is, this is right after a, a few things happened in the life of Israel. You might be familiar with this story, but God had given his law and his commandments Uh, chiseled on stone to the people of Israel. This is a wonderful thing. He was essentially giving them a gift. He was saying, here's what life looks like with me. It's gonna be great. Uh, And in order to do that, he met with Moses on a mountainside to deliver what was called the covenant, the the law of God. 
And in that 40 days, I think it was, that God was giving him the the law of God to be delivered to Israel, Israel immediately fell into idolatry. Uh, Aaron crafted a a golden calf and the people of Israel because God was, you know, noticeably absent according to their perception for a month. Uh, They began worshiping a different God, you know, as soon as they they were delivered from Egypt. So they they fell immediately into their old patterns and... uh, God is upset about that. Moses intercedes. God shows mercy because that's what he does. Uh, Moses goes back up onto the mountain, and God says, let's try this again. I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to give you the covenant, and this is where we pick it up. Uh, let's read the first, uh, let's, read, let's read nine verses. Exodus chapter 34, verse 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. (laughs) Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is God's word. Wonderful passage, wanted to get the context there, but our verse is the second half of verse seven. He will by no means clear the guilty, but he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is what I want to talk about today. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you in awe and holy trembling. I hope, as Moses did, with the sense that we are standing on holy ground. Not holy ground because of the particular place that we're in or the building, not because of our church name, not even because of us or any particular preacher or minister, not because of this particular group and who we are, but Lord, because you are God and you are alive, you are present and you're speaking. And you are the one who sanctifies your people and you sanctify the place in which your people gather. And for that, we thank you. You are the one who brings your presence and speaks through your word 
by the power of your Holy Spirit. You're the one who brings us close by the finished work of Jesus Christ and lavishes the love of God the Father upon us. And so, Lord, we have nothing to bring to the table except for our sin and our willingness to exchange our sin for your love and your tremendous grace. So you do that work. Do whatever you want in us today as a church and leave everything else aside. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been speaking uh, for the past couple months about sanctification or uh, the word I like to use, spiritual formation, this idea that we are being spiritually formed, even if you are not intentionally trying to be spiritually formed well. Every single person in this room is the uh, result and outcome of spiritual formation, whether you are a, a, a horrible dictator or you are Mother Teresa, you are the product of spiritual formation. You have been formed. Everyone in this room, myself, yourself included, we are who we are today as a result of everything that's come before us in our experience, in our history, in our past. And we are you know, writing new histories and new stories, but who we are right now at this moment is the product of a past. Our past is what shapes us, what gives us what we have today. It is very powerful and formative. And in our past, what I want to show you from this text and from some uh, examples in Scripture is that nothing in your past is more powerful, more formative in your life than that of your biological family, your family of origin. We're shaped by our past, we're largely explained by our past, and nothing in our past carries more weight and more power than our biological families, especially in those early years, whatever, between you know, six and eight and you know, 14 or 15, however you want to position it, our childhood, we have been powerfully formed and shaped, perhaps more than any other element or variable, by our family. Uh, and this is by God's design. You were born into the family you were born into at a particular time in history because of God's infinite wisdom and sovereign power and control. He chose your family, both good and bad. He chose it for good, and yet we all know, because of the effects of sin and our fallen nature, that it comes with some bad things. But God's design, he chose the family that you have, or maybe feel like you didn't have, for certain reasons in his infinite wisdom. And the Bible has a lot to say about this, but self-awareness for us, since that's something we've been talking about for a couple weeks, involves more than just looking at the here and now. What am I dealing with now and how do I act out of some of those feelings? It also involves going back in order to go forward. If some of those feelings, some of the, way our, uh, the ways that our hearts react, the anxiety that we carry, the passions that we have, our ambitions, what drives us, a lot of those things are in large part dictated and formed by our past, specifically 
by our family of origin. So being self-aware, very simply put, means revisiting the fast in order to go forward. The Bible has a lot to say about this. But this morning's text, even though it's half a verse and a bit of a vignette, gives us a lot of explanation about why this is and how it works. Exodus chapter 34 verse 7 says that God visits the iniquity or the sins of the parents, the fathers, on the children and on children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, my initial uh, impression of that when I first read it was, wow, this is really harsh and a little bit unfair. And I really started to feel that when I became a parent. Well, God, bro. That ain't cool. And think about this. If we were to carry this to its logical conclusion, let's say you're trying to be, you know, you went to school to learn finance, you're going to be a CPA or an accountant, and you, every door for years is closed to you, and you find out in your family tree that your great-great-grandmother and grandfather were Bonnie and Clyde. You're like, oh, great, God. You know, my, you know, generations ago, my, my great-great-grandparents robbed banks, so now you're punishing me. You're so vindictive, you know. This isn't fair. I am not them. Not only does it seem harsh and fair, passages like this, this one in particular, but it also seems inconsistent with other passages in the Bible. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, there's another one just like it in Ezekiel, that tell us what sounds like the opposite of what we just read. It says that you are not to punish a son or a child for the sins of their parents. The principle there is that we are all being held personally responsible by God for how we choose to live our lives. We are not our parents. And as parents, we are not our kids. We are not our siblings, we are not our friends, we are us. And God holds us personally responsible, right, for how we live our lives. So what are we to make of Exodus 34 verse 7 when it seems to say God actually lays the sins of the fathers on the generations that come after them? I think part of the, the clarity that comes out is in what the authors here mean by sin. Uh, in the English language, we get one word to describe a lot of stuff. It's sin. But in the Hebrew language, uh, the, the word that we probably are associating right now for sin is what often comes up in the Hebrew as shata. Uh, actually, it shows up in Exodus 34, 7 at the beginning. Uh, I'll just read where it, uh, where it occurs. It says that God, it's actually in, in context of his mercy and forgiveness, It says, verse 7, he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, shatha. So not only is it referring to, you know, our wrong actions, missing the mark, but it also refers to the outcome, punishment, the wrath of God, you know, that type of stuff that might be in our minds when we're reading the second part of Exodus 34, 7, where it says that he visits the sin or the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children. But that word in the Hebrew is actually a different word. It's actually the Hebrew word avon, not shata. And it speaks still of missing the mark, of doing, uh, of wrongdoing, 
But another, uh, uh, as far as outcomes, as far as God's uh, uh, treatment of sin, it speaks less of God's punishment, and it also has, it has this connotation of consequence. So instead of punishment, it speaks of consequences. That's why one translation, uh, HCSB, uh, translates this passage in this way. Listen to this. But God will not leave the guilty unpunished, but he will bring the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So it's not that God is vindictive, you know, spring future generations with bursts of punitive wrath, you know. Your great great uncle was Bonnie and Clyde, so I'm going to ruin your finances, you know, because I'm angry. But, you know, it's not like this is some Christian form of karma. Rather, it's that the effects of sin are very destructive. I think that's part of why God hates sin. It ruins his good design. And sin isn't just destructive for us when we we sin. We don't sin in a vacuum, but it actually has effects on people around us. And Exodus 34, 7 actually says that those effects are even felt generationally. And God, it says in this passage, it seems that God leaves those circumstances to be felt by future generations. Uh, The NLT would describe this very passage in this way so that the, and I quote, the entire family is affected. Now those consequences are often sinful patterns of families, siblings, parents that carry on generation after generation. Things that some of us do that end up happening perpetually and habitually over and over throughout our family generations. And I think this scriptural principle is very clearly summarized uh, in a helpful way by Pete Scazzaro uh, of the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which we have found so helpful. Uh, Let me read this quote. He says, while we are affected by powerful external events and circumstances through our earthly lives, Our families are the most powerful group to which we will ever belong. Even those who left home as young adults, determined to break from their family histories, soon find that their family's way of doing life follows them wherever they go. What happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. The consequences of actions and decisions taken in one generation affect those who follow. Now, some of those patterns are going to be good, right? Perhaps you're thinking of the good ones right now. In mine, I remember a lot of laughter, a lot of goofiness, uh, a lot of eating takeout Chinese with my dad, shooting guns in the backyard, uh, wrestling with the dog, going to work with it. Lots of good memories that have shaped me well. And if we're honest, and I think that's the point of this series, is to be honest, there's some bad ones too. And perhaps for some of us, we like to think about the good ones and ignore the bad ones, but I think Jesus is calling us to face them all. 
not to feel victimized, not to blame, not to have self-pity, but to be free. And to further open our hearts to the transforming power and work of Jesus Christ. But that requires us going into the past and uncovering some of those repeated family patterns that are bad. We see this actually pop up all throughout the Bible. It's crazy. Once you're aware of it, you see it all over the place. Uh, Here's some examples. How about David? King David. I want you to think of one single earthquake event in David's life, traumatic event that shaped everything afterwards. You thinking of it? How about when he, uh, as king, uh, committed adultery and then killed the husband of that woman in order to cover up his affair? That's kind of traumatic. (laughs) One single event. Now, here's a, a couple things that happen there, right? There's, there's uh, sexual sin, adultery. There's also murder. You know, he, kill, he, had his, he had Bathsheba's husband, a good man, uh, killed. Do we see either of those things showing up in David's family? Absolutely. Talk about murder. Uh, the Bible actually tells us point blank that this pattern will occur in his family. In first, uh, Second Samuel verse 12, verse 10, uh, Nathan speaking to David says, because of what you did, the sword, or another word for violence, shall not depart from your house. There it is right there. Prophetic affirmation and confirmation of Exodus chapter 34, verse seven. Violence will not depart from your house generation after generation. And we actually see examples of this. If you read the story of Absalom, uh, one of David's sons, Absalom is, a, is crazy, man. He's violent. He kills people. Uh, in an act of revenge for his sister, he kills his half-brother who uh, defiles his sister. Absalom actually uh, wants to take over David, his father's kingdom himself, so he actually tries to chase his dad and kill his dad, and uh, David goes on the run. We see violence and murder perpetuated throughout the family. What about sexual sin? We see that in David's family too. Absalom uh, ends up sleeping, uh, just despite his dad, ends up sleeping with you know, all of his concubines, uh, the fact that David has concubines is sexual sin. I should throw that out there. <laughs> Not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. Sometimes it's just descriptive of dumb things people did. But there's sexual sin all over the place. Absalom does that. It doesn't stop with Absalom. We see the story of Tamar uh, being assaulted by her half-brother. And that's where Absalom steps in and kills him. Later on, we see Solomon, act a pretty good guy in his own right, uh, he actually is, uh, gets uh, a whole country and kingdom that is experiencing peace. David paves the way for him. He has no enemies. He's wealthy. Uh, he has an encounter with God that leaves him with the highest dosage of the spiritual gift of wisdom any person has ever experienced, and he leads very well. People come from all over the world to see how well he leads and his, his wealth and his abilities. He has one problem sexual sin. 
In the book of 1 Kings, we see that this ends up actually being his undoing. He sleeps with everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean a thousand documented people. 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the book of 1 Kings actually tells us that that was Solomon's undoing. It says that his wives led his heart astray. His heart went after all those other gods because of this sexual sin. And later on, we see that his kingdom is actually split in two for the first time in history. And over and over, we see these patterns repeating themselves. It's not just David. What about Abraham? Woo! Any patterns of sin that we see in Abraham and his family? How about deception? You remember the story where Abraham is on the run? You know, he's uh, going all over the place, and he's with his wife Sarah, and Sarah is very attractive. And one of the kings sees Sarah, uh, and it says in, in this, this narrative in Genesis, Abraham thinks to himself, uh, the king is going to see my wife, and she's beautiful, and she's gonna, uh, he's going to want her, and, he, and he's going to kill me. And so out of a, a cowardly act of self-preservation, he lies and calls Sarah his sister, leaving her ver- vulnerable to the king. And the king is actually going to sleep with her until an angel of the Lord steps in on the scene and did what uh, Abraham should have done and speaks the truth and then threatens the guy's life. It was awesome. And then Abraham goes on to explain to the king, like, I was afraid that you were going to kill me, so I lied and, you know, called her my sister. Well, we see the same exact thing happening in Isaac. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. We see the same deception happening in Abraham's son. It doesn't just stop with Abraham's son. It gets carried on into the, great grand, uh, into the grandkids in Jacob, the guy whose name means deception. And we see Jacob carry this on in an exacerbated way. He's deceiving everybody, man. He's deceiving his, his uh, uh, blind dad, Isaac. He's deceiving his uh, brother, Esau. He goes on uh, to meet his match in his father-in-law, Laban, who then deceives him. That's why he ends up with two wives. They start deceiving one another. Jacob ends up leaving in the night to deceive his, his father-in-law, Laban, and just carries on this cycle over and over and over. Uh, it's not just deceiving. What about favoritism? We see favoritism all throughout Abraham's family. Abraham favored one particular son, Isaac over uh, Ishmael. Isaac, uh, not Isaac, excuse me, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, favored uh, Jacob over Esau. And Jacob favored who? Joseph. He favored Joseph over his uh, 11 other sons. You remember the story about the coat of many colors? gives him gifts, privileges him, shelters him, protects him, sends his other kids into battle, pampers this kid, and we actually see that tearing the family apart. We see what we're seeing here in the Bible, not just taught explicitly, but examples of family scripts and patterns that get handed down from generation to generation until eventually, and we'll talk about this at the end, That kid Joseph learns how to break the cycle. But our past is likewise full of scripts and patterns 
that we've inherited from our family, from our siblings, from our parents, from our grandparents, that we habitually live into and perpetuate into our workplaces, into our businesses, into our our nuclear family, you know, if you marry into another family, uh, into our churches. A lot of the ways that we react and act are in large part formed by this powerful part of our lives, our biological families. But you can't change what you don't know. The question all of us are facing right now is what are those scripts and what are those patterns? Now, we could spend hours speaking about the good things that our families have shaped us with and to celebrate and to be thankful and to thank the Lord and to thank our families. But that's not what we're gonna do this morning. Because that's easy. And you should do that on your own time. But what's hard for most of us is going back to face the darkness, to face the mess. The question is, what are the broken scripts and patterns that we're still living and being controlled by? For me, uh, growing up, my childhood, uh, you know, if I could put a value system on emotions, I'd say that in the Lazo family, the good, the pleasant emotions were like, they were championed. You know, celebration, happiness, uh, excitement, laughter, and the unpleasant emotions were, were not valued. So anger, uh, sadness, depression, anxiety, uh, those types of things. And so, you know, those, those unpleasant emotions were avoided in my family, even punished. I remember this line, change your attitude or else. No? So growing up, conflict was very difficult for me. It was difficult because I was unable to tell people that I disagreed with them or that I didn't like something that was happening. Uh, the way that I would end up dealing with, with some of those things in the early years, like in my childhood, teenage years, was to lash out, often violently and aggressively. So I didn't know any other way to deal with conflict. So I would, I would stuff it in until it just exploded. Later, as I thought I, I, I matured, I wouldn't lash out as much. I would simply cut that person off. Say, well, you're messing with me. You don't agree with me. You don't like what I'm doing coming against me. Well, I'm done with you. As I became a Christian, I would take that and I would hide it with the veneer of spirituality. So if you, if you did something that I didn't like or you came against me or you upset me, not only would I cut you off, but I would give it Christian language. I'm taking the high road. Oh, well, they did this to me, but I'm going to turn the other cheek by cutting them off forever. <laughs> I'm being humble. I'm taking, I'm taking this one for the kingdom. <laughs> I wasn't. I was wronging that person by hiding what I really felt. I was lying to myself and I was lying to God. And I was ripping myself off from a deep relationship with that person and from a transformative relationship with Jesus. 
And no matter how hard I tried to hide what I really felt, it would always reveal itself in the future in one way or another. You can't hide who you really are. My script, if I could say I had a family script, it was handed down from generation to generation, I would say, uh, don't feel the, the negative feelings, or I, I think a better one would be, conflict is bad, okay? Conflict is bad. I'll give you one more family script that I, I grew up with. Uh, Filipinos generally don't have the physique of LeBron James, so I was the smallest guy in the class. All of us were, from generation to generation. So we had to make up for that. Growing up in rough schools and rough environments, we had to be bigger in different ways. Often that was through violence. Uh, I wasn't just the small guy in the class. Uh, I was goofy, I was awkward, I was chronically shy. So I had a lot going, I had a lot going for me. But I, I felt this tremendous need to, to get people's respect. And if I couldn't get it the right way, I would get it a different way. Often, uh, uh, generations of us going all the way back to gr- great-grandparents used violent or emotional outbursts to get people's attention to get compliance, to earn respect. So that might be another family script. Uh, outbursts get me what I need. Uh, reaction, being reactionary will get me what I need. So there's two scripts that I grew up with. Conflict is bad, and outbursts will get me what I need. Now I want, I want you to imagine me in a scenario where I'm with a friend or a boss or a coworker, and they give me some constructive feedback. Uh, how do you think my natural family scripts would want me to react in that moment? Or maybe I have a problem with them. How do you think my natural response is going to be? Well, I'm not going to say anything because conflict is bad. And because I'm a Christian, I'm going to... Hey, how am I doing here? Great. How is everything? Awesome. God is good. But deep down inside, I hate you. (laughs) And eventually, because I can't keep it in, I will either cut off that relationship or I will explode in emotional reaction and anger, damaging that trust that I had with that friend. Now, if you look at my past, every single relationship I've ever had that I can think of, going all the way back to second grade, was ruined because of that. Everyone. My longest friendships are here at reality. I burned every bridge. I smashed every door. I cut everybody off because everybody at some point is going to have a conflict. (laughs) And I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't know how to live fully out of my heart. Uh, Even though I wasn't born again until I was 20, I grew up in the church, and I never stayed. We never stayed for very long. I never stayed for very long in any church. We had a lifespan of several years because of conflicts, and I'd bounce from church to church. 
Even when I became an adult, I'd bounce from church to church to church because people would mess with me. They'd question something. Uh, they'd bring something up. They'd rub me the wrong way. And I'd either lash out or I'd bounce. Family scripts are incredibly powerful. What are yours? This is something you can't really take lightly or just do on the spot, although I'm going to ask you to do it on the spot. But you might have to reflect deeply in solitude with God on this. The things I'm telling you right now are coming from hours, days, I'd like to say years of spending time in solitude with God, asking him to reveal things in my life and heal me, to help me to embrace the good and to leave the bad. This is hard for me. It's still hard for me. This can't happen overnight and it's not gonna happen in a sermon, but we can start right now by simply asking, what are my scripts? If you're uh, wondering how to even start with that, just think of major issues in a family, things like money. And just go through all of those things and ask yourself, what, what script emerges most powerfully in my family around this particular issue? What is it for money? You know, for, maybe for your family, uh, the script would be, money is the best source of security or it makes you important, or it proves that you made it, or something else. Uh, what about conflict? What are the scripts that come up with conflict? Maybe your family, uh, family script is, I avoid conflict at all costs, or don't get people mad. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe your family script is, loud, angry, constant fighting is normal. What is a family script about sex? Maybe it's we don't speak about that ever. Or maybe it's uh, something like men can be promiscuous, but women must be chaste, something like that. So many different scripts. What's the script with grief and loss? Maybe it's something like sadness is a sign of weakness, depression is not allowed. Or maybe it's, hey, whatever happens in life that's bad, get over it and move on. Be strong. What about expressing anger? Maybe it's, Anger is bad. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe your family, would, uh, the script is explode in anger to prove a point. Or maybe it's more subtle. Maybe it's uh, anger is bad, but sarcasm is an acceptable way to deal with your anger. Jabbing remarks, passive-aggressive comments, that's okay. What about family itself? Maybe the script is, uh, have you ever heard of this? Uh, have you ever felt this one? You owe your parents for all they've ever done for you or vice versa. I owe my kids. What about we don't speak about our family's dirty laundry? We don't bring it up. Or duty to family and culture comes before everything. What about relationships? Maybe the script is don't trust people because they'll always let you down. Don't be vulnerable. Don't let people hurt you. What about our attitudes towards other races and cultures. Maybe it's only be friends with people who are like you. Maybe it's don't marry a person from another race or culture. Maybe it's certain races and cultures are not as good as ours. 
We would never say that, but you know that that's a script. What about success? What's the family script for success? What's success look like to you? Maybe it's getting into the best schools, making a certain amount of money every year, having a certain career. Maybe that's driving you. Maybe you're like, I'm a lawyer, but if I was a doctor, then I'd feel complete. My, I'd be accepted. What about feelings and emotions? I mean, we could go on and on and on, but what are, what are the scripts that drive you? And there's good ones, right? I think there's good ones. For some, there's more good ones than bad. For others, there's less good ones than bad. But we can probably look at the good ones, but, the, but today is about looking at the ones that we need to leave behind. Actually, this is so important. I want to give you just a minute in stillness and quietness to, to, to bring this before God and to reflect. What are, what are one or two scripts that you've inherited that drive you? Just think about that for, for 60 seconds before God. Whatever you, you came up with, what we're going to do in the second set of worship is to bring those things before God and to invite him into those things. One of the best things you can do at the beginning is to simply be aware of what they are. Family scripts are incredibly powerful. They shape us more than perhaps anything in the world. And yet, like we see in Deuteronomy and Ezekiel, we are also held personally responsible by God for what we will do with the history that we have. The good news of the gospel is you do not need to be defined any longer by what has happened to you. We do not need to be defined by the ill that we've inherited from our past, including our friendships, our siblings, our biological families. We are now, if you are a follower of Jesus, the Bible says you are defined by your identity in Christ and, this is lovely, by your new family in Christ. And it doesn't mean you don't have a biological family anymore. It means your allegiance and your identity has changed and gotten deeper. Hebrews 2, uh, verse 11 through 12 tells us, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's you, are of the same family. 
And Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother and his sister. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, you are, if you are in Christ, you are members of the household of God. Now, for those of us that live in a Western individualistic culture, stuff like that loses its potency and its power. Because for us, if I were to ask you, what is the most powerful and meaningful relationship in your life? Uh, Some of you might say, well, the person that I'm in love with, you know, my spouse, my girlfriend, my boyfriend. Uh, We might really love our families, but the most, uh, a a very powerful and formative relationship right now might be yourself, if you're single, because we're individualistic, or your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend, if you're in a relationship. Also something driven by our individualistic passions. Uh, But in the New Testament world, it was actually the opposite. The family unit was so deeply powerful. That was your loyalty, even over and beyond your spouse. Uh, Joseph Hellerman, an expert on family in in ancient biblical times, writes, in the ancient world, an individual viewed as family those persons with whom he or she shared a common uh, bloodline that traced from generation to generation solely through offspring. In other, uh, so, in other words, the closest family bond, he would go on to say, in ancient Mediterranean society was not even the bond of marriage. It was the bond between siblings, your brother, your sister, your dad, your mom. Those were your highest forms of allegiance. Correspondingly, the most treacherous act of human disloyalty in an ancient family was betrayal of one's brother, biological brother. Now, can you imagine the scandal and the revolution of the words that would come from this Jewish rabbi named Jesus when his brothers and his mother came up to him while he was busy preaching and said, hey, what are you doing, Jesus? You're... Your mom and your brothers are waiting for you. And he responded to them, what? Who are my mother and my brothers? The ones who do the will of the Father are my mother and my brothers. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he would actually say, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He would say in another passage uh, that we are to hate. Now, I want to be careful. He's not actually saying to despise your family, but by means of comparison, our biological family and friends in comparison to him. He's not saying hate your family. He's speaking about comparison. He's saying your allegiance now must change. You love your friends You love your biological family still, and you're connected with them, but your allegiance is no longer to your biological family, ultimately. It's no longer to your friends. It's no longer to your race and culture. It's no longer to your country. It's certainly no longer to Western individualism. You have a new primary family. That is your family in Christ. 
Your past may explain you, but it doesn't have to define you anymore. What defines a Christian now is Jesus and the family by which he has placed you in. Now, I want us to be very careful and humble here. This is not to blame other people in our life, to blame our families or to blame even our parents. Now, let me just put it this way. If you use this to play the victim and to point the finger at someone in your family, like you, this is your fault. You're really just exposing your own emotional immaturity because God, Deuteronomy, holds you accountable for what you will do with your own history. Not your parents, not your siblings. Holds you responsible. We should just think of this as a big system, this family that we are in, including our parents, including our kids, if we have kids. And if I think of my grandparents and my parents, they actually did a lot better than the parents that, they, that came before them. Often the truth, right? They weren't, they weren't handed a whole lot, and they made a, a lot of it. You think of it as people, by the grace of God, just trying to do better with what they have been given. Jesus said to be careful about judging others as well because you will be judged by the same standard that you use. So be careful about what you say about your family. You know what I think of when I think of my family? I think of my kids. And the fact that even though I'm trying the very best that I can to be a good dad, they're for sure going to need therapy, man. <laughs> I hope that my kids are shaped well by their mom and dad. But I also know that I'm a sinner and I'm going to bring stuff into it that they're going to have to be free from too. And I hope that they're gracious to me. And I hope that they talk about this stuff with me and I hope that we can be free from some of those patterns together. So when we think about these things, it's not to blame people in our family, certainly not to blame our parents, it's to be gracious and it's to not look at our parents or even individuals in our families, but to look at patterns that all of us have been stuck in. And to remember that God chose you to be put in the family that you're in at this point in time because he's writing a story, and he's inviting you into that story, and part of that story involves freedom. Our task now as disciples isn't to blame, but as disciples of Jesus, it's to embrace the good and to identify the bad patterns and scripts that do not line up with our new identity and our new family in Christ, and yet are still driving our patterns and behaviors and beliefs. This is a basic task of emotionally healthy spirituality. And this is why we all know people who have been Christians for 20 years and still deal with conflict like four-year-olds. Why? Because they know a lot of information about Jesus, but they have not opened that area of their hearts to God. That's why we know people who know a lot of doctrine and knowledge and have been going to church all their lives and still lash out in anger uncontrollably. 
and the list goes on and on. As one person put it, Jesus might be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. And knowing that Christianity is very corporate and very family-oriented, so we can think of passages like put off the old self and put on the new self to include something like this. We must put off the old family and put on the new family. This is our task. How do we do that? How do we go back? It just starts with self-awareness. If you're even thinking about these things, you are in the right direction looking under the surface, not just at addictions or behaviors or actions that we can hopefully control and fix overnight by our own willpower, remembering, hey, there's things that we can't even see driving our willpower, like your mama and your dad and your uncles and your brothers and your sisters and your great-grandparents, and you're going to be doing the same thing. Some of you have better family experiences than normal. You're going to be the ones that have the hardest time with this because you're going you're to see all the good. For those of us that have had difficult situations, it's easy to see the bad. For those of you that have really good upbringings and families, praise God for that. You're going to have a hard time seeing some of those other patterns, but you've got to. You've got to go back in order to go forward. And if you were able to do that in the presence of God, think of the freedom that you would experience. I want to end uh, with just by giving you an example. Joseph. Joseph actually started off as a very emotionally immature little kid. He had dreams. He was privileged. Uh, he was pampered and spoiled and isolated Um, he was unaware of how his dreams were uh, alienating his brothers. So badly were they that they actually tried to kill him, threw him in a deep, dark well, left him for dead, and then uh, changed their plan for that to sell him into slavery. And in the course of that journey, he ended up being accused of sexual assault, thrown in prison, where he uh, sat for probably 10, 11, maybe 12 years. And it was in that dark night of the soul, of the cell, that Genesis tells us he walked with God. God met him in his pain. He met him in some of those areas and Joseph faced some of those things from his past and stayed connected to the Lord. Now, Overnight, we see in the story that he is all of a sudden elevated to the second most powerful person in the world at that time. And then he encounters his, his 11 brothers. And if I were Joseph, in my emotionally immature seasons in life, I would have used my power to squash those guys. They tried to kill me and then sold me into slavery. Can you imagine your brothers doing that to you? And yet we see him weeping. He's feeling the full range of human emotion. And yet he's acting based on principle, not reacting. He's giving generously to them, giving them a lot of food, a little extra for his his blood brother Benjamin. 
And then he actually sustains them, gives them land in Egypt, the best land available, brings them to the table, loves them, brings them close. He doesn't cut them off. After all that pain and betrayal, Joseph is able to love them. What is happening? Joseph is living more fully out of his heart. He's not dependent on them, nor is he enslaved by them. He is able to be present and loving his family actually way more deeply than he did before. By going back to your past, you'll be able to love your family deeper than you ever thought imaginable. But he doesn't just love his family. See the rest of the story? Joseph, with a healed heart, will go on to feed the nations. I want to bring up, uh, ask Cody to come out here and the band as we sing together. And I want to leave you with two questions to bring before God. Looking at this picture, that, to go be, uh, to, uh, that we need to go back in order to go forward, that it's often in some of these painful, maybe uncomfortable places, the mess, that God can not only heal us, but set us on a course of freedom and liberation. It requires us going back to some of these places. If, if that's what you want to do today, you can do that by asking yourself a couple of questions in the presence of God as we sing. One, what are one or two scripts or insights that you are becoming aware of in terms of how your family or events in your family have shaped who you are today? First question. Second question. What are one or two specific ways that these may be impacting your life right now? Or your job, or your relationships, your marriage, your singleness? And just stop. Don't have to fix anything. If you've gotten this far, you're doing great. Serious, you're doing, doing great. This is the work of God, believe it or not. Work of God to heal and to free you, to liberate you, to transform you, and to set you on fire for his glory in the world. Starts with these two questions. If you were to be honest and vulnerable with them before God, I shudder to think of your Joseph story and what he might do in you. Heavenly Father, work in us healing and transformation in your timing. In Jesus' name, amen.